Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond Words with Felix and Al. I'm trying to be a little more lively today. I've received some comments from from listeners. They're complimentary, but what they tell me is that my voice soothes them to sleep. That they go to sleep when they listen to me talk. So I'm trying to bring a little more inflection and and excitement to my voice because I don't want you to fall asleep while you're listening. Stay awake, man, woman. No, you know, if you go to sleep peacefully because of my voice, that's great too. This is, uh, I don't know what episode we're at now. I think uh, we're beyond the point of keeping track of the number. So this is episode 18, something like that. I don't know. And 17, maybe, who cares? Today, uh, Felix and I, amongst other topics, we really dove into the program, programming, the stories, the programs that we take on in our lifetime through advertising and television and film and all sorts of uh, subliminal messaging and how these programs really affect us in our life, in our decision-making. How much of our thoughts and our opinions are actually ours? Listen to find out more. Thank you for joining us. Real quick, I just want to give a big thank you to our supporters on Locals.com. You can find us there at beyondwords.locals.com. And for $5 a month or more, should you choose, you can be a supporter of this podcast, supporting its growth and evolution, supporting Felix and I as we expand the podcast, as we grow and evolve, as we uh, create more offerings for our community of listeners, for you. So if you're a member with us on Locals.com, you'll also have access to early releases of the podcast and some extra content so we really appreciate you Uh, if you're not a supporter but you would like to still support us somehow uh, you can do so by pausing this podcast right now and leaving a five-star review and subscribing to the podcast on apple podcasts on spotify you can follow the podcast and hit the notification button you can do the same on Google and any other platform if you can just leave a five-star review and hit the notification button and follow the podcast. Anything you can do there helps to get this podcast more exposure when people search for that perfect podcast for their life. So that's that. I have made this the shortest introduction in the history of this podcast. I don't think there's anything else to share for now. So I'm going to leave it at that, and I wish you a beautiful journey with us on this conversation that delves, delves, dives into the realms of programming. Enjoy. Once 
Once upon a time, in the time of now, there was a man walking down to the canal. He brought a fishing pole so he could get fish, so he could eat dinner and no longer twitch because he had a condition that caused lots of twitching. That's the nature of the man, it's true. He's standing in his kitchen preparing the food and the fish came out looking mighty good. He put a bunch of spices, a little bit of salt and a squeeze of lemon and that is all that he needed to feel satisfied with his meal. Yes, here in this day and time, we just gotta eat here and there. Supply our body with the nourishment deserves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally irrelevant and yet important. Because the food that you eat becomes you. You are what you eat. Uh, lentil soup is mental fruit. Ginger root is good for the youth. Fresh vegetables with the Mai Tao stew. Sweet yam fries with the green Kalaloo. Careful how you season or prepare your food because it might... You don't want to lose vitamins and minerals and that's a jewel. What comes from the ground is natural. Something, 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 everybody's powerful. That's uh, a quote from Dead Prez. Uh, they had an album. And uh, in that album, they uh, has a, a few really cool songs. Some of them are pretty intense, uh, but I really love the one called Eat, Be Healthy. Be healthy, y'all. says, gotta be healthy, y'all. Mm-hmm. That's how it starts. Yeah. Lentil soup is mental fruit. And ginger root. Is good for the youth. Hmm. I think that's what he says. I, I'm pretty sure that's what he says. But, you know, there's another song on the album called Happiness. And, you know, they're balanced because they talk about the healthy food, but in happiness they're like, uh, uh, they got Guinness Stout in the freezer. <laughs> something about something, something. It's a beautiful day. Have a nice beer, you know. So, you know, balance. People often, you know, they come and drink plant medicine and then they think that we just eat plant medicine diet food, which is bland and healthy, but bland and lacking in salt. And some of them are surprised to know that we too eat pizza. We too have beer. And uh, not all of us, but you and I on occasion uh, like to enjoy the fruits of life, the the gifts of the planet to help us relax, <laughs> enjoy. You know, a good beer. You like beer? A good beer. What's your favorite beer? Hmm. <clears throat> Here in Peru or in the world? In, in the whole world, the, your favorite beer. If if you can only, if you could just order any beer you possibly wanted, and it would magically appear right now. What would it be, Felix? It's hard because there's all the micro brews and I like know. the mini brews, and they all have interesting names. I don't know if you ever had Flying Dog. I believe I have. Yeah, Flying Dog was good. Yeah, it was also like thirteen percent alcohol. Oh wow, it was pretty. Really? Yeah, <laughs> that's intense, man. It's like our highest at the bar. It was like the highest alcohol content beer. More bang for your buck. More bang for the buck. Yeah, I, I used to go after work when I lived in New York City, finish working at the restaurant like at midnight. We'd all go to this this uh, beer bar in the corner, 
and they figured it out. I think they w- the beer's price was based on the alcohol content. So like the stronger beers were pricier, so you couldn't really get more bang for your buck. It was a great spot, though. Wow. That's genius. It is genius. That's really smart. Those days, man, would work from like, you worked in restaurant in- industry too, show up at 3 p.m., just like bust my ass, like prepping everything behind the bar, you know, cutting fruit, getting all the alcohol ready, everything. Customers start showing up like 4.35. And then it's just, I mean, like a Thursday night, it was just Friday night, Saturday night, just full on intensity until midnight, just nonstop, just running around, carrying stuff, multitasking, cleaning cups while taking an order, while collecting money. I mean, it was insane, right? And then at midnight, I couldn't do this anymore. We would all go drink five beers, get home at 4 a.m., sleep till 11, try to go to the gym, and then repeat. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. And I would smoke a bunch of weed after the gym before getting on the subway to go to work. (laughs) And many times on that subway ride, I'd be really high and I'd just question everything and I'd I'd get really close to just getting off the train and not going to work you know (laughs) like dreading work and then getting there and then once it gets busy you kind of forget all that and you're just in it you know in the flow that was good did you enjoy working in restaurant industry bars there were moments that were fun I mean it was it was definitely good money I can't can't lie about that I mean making my rent in a weekend I can't complain about that yeah, I, I mean, I really enjoyed a lot of the people I worked with. Um, and you worked behind the bar, yeah? I worked behind the bar. I often compare working behind the bar. There, there's actually a lot of similarities to facilitating a ceremony right. in a way. <laughs> You're serving a drink that alters people's state of consciousness. And they oftentimes will talk to you. Sometimes they talk about their problems and stuff. And, uh, and it's at night and there's music and... There is like a certain amount of facilitation. The main difference is, you know, after plant medicine, you generally wake up feeling better. <laughs> Maybe after a day or two, whereas alcohol, it's, you don't feel better the next day. Uh, so alcohol is short-term pleasure, long-term pain, and vice versa for plant medicine, right? That's one reason I don't drink as much anymore. I think we talked about it on a previous podcast where I was like, I kind of, my new favorite drug is my clarity. Like, it's so enjoyable to be clear and, like, precision of mind for me is, like, it's very, it releases a lot of dopamine, I guess, maybe. Mm. I don't know. Maybe I'm just releasing dopamine constantly. Yeah. I really love clarity, too. I I think for me, I, I think alcohol is like anything. If you drink a lot, your body gets better at, like, processing it. But now that I don't drink that often, it's, like, a couple beers and, uh I just feel kind of you want to take a nap. Yeah, the ne- even the next day I feel like shit even after 2. But sometimes it's fun. Once in a while we gather all the guys here and we have like men's by the fire, we just drink a bunch of beer and it's it's amazing. We we also did that. We had a celebration. We had a New Year's celebration back at the old place we worked. Oh, we went yeah. up into the village and it was like <clears throat> for me it was, it was such potent medicine because it was like after years of being super clean, like having a super clean diet, tons of medicine work, 
and just being super serious. Couldn't I didn't really like bend too far out of the diet restrictions because I lived there. And uh, we had a New Year's celebration, and we actually like drank alcohol, Al and I, and it was amazing. It we was were drinking like jungle juice, like ju- strong, strange things that were concocted in the middle of the yeah. rainforest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great time, man. That was fun. That was the time when there were fireworks because in Peru they love fireworks, and at New Year's they're like blowing up fireworks in the village. And it was very dangerous. Like kids really near them. And we're drunk, like, running through the fireworks. <laughs> oh, good times, you know? Good times. You know, there's actually, you speak of alcohol as medicine. I mean, there are shamanic traditions. There's one in Guatemala around Lake Atitlan. I forget the, the name, but, uh, and I'll try to remember. There's an amazing book by this American guy who I think in the 70s, 80s, he he was just lost in life, and he hitchhiked his way to Guatemala, and he ended up in this village and he just basically integrated into the village and he learned the language. He learned uh, the Mayan language and learned all about their, their tradition. It was, it's amazing. And, and they use alcohol. They use alcohol to connect with, with uh, spirit, with ancestors, with, they have these, I mean, this, the shaman, that's, that's what they use is like, I think corn alcohol. And uh, so, I mean, it's called spirits, right? So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and I, <clears throat> never want to demonize alcohol again it's like it's really nice it has its place it has its place and it's like i mean even i think all medicines are all uh of these mind altering substances they have a place and they also they have like a, a limit like if you drink too much ayahuasca you will meet the limit of ayahuasca and it's terrifying mm. if you drink too much alcohol you can die, you know. Um, That's the cool thing about ayahuasca. You can't really die. You can't die. I think the maybe over- spiritually. Yeah. Well, yeah. You can get, but the, like the over, the literally physical overdose rate is, it's beyond what you can even hold in your stomach. It's like Ugh. liters and liters and liters when you're just drinking thirty milliliters, you know, in a dose, uh, or, or give or take. So that's cool. You can't overdose, <laughs> but it's yeah. Alcohol is really powerful. And it's, you know, the argument is like, why is that legal and, and advertised and so pushed and promoted when these other substances have, aren't any more effective in terms of altering states of consciousness, aren't any more dangerous. In fact, many of them are less dangerous. Just this old argument, it's, if you really look at it, it's stupid that we're, we're prohibited from consuming these plants, but we can drink this stuff that causes so many deaths, either by drunk driving or by liver failure or by, and it's so addictive. disordered, yeah. Yeah, it makes people aggressive, and I mean, yeah, this is an argument that's been proposed a million times, and it is pretty silly if you look at it. It's like uh, Bill Hicks, to quote the great Bill Hicks Uh, again. Bill Hicks. He's like, if you're at a baseball game and somebody's loud and obnoxious, <clears throat> are they drunk or are they smoking pot? Yeah. They're drunk. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty obvious. Because <laughs> it's physically impossible to start a fight when you're high. Yeah. <laughs> hey, buddy. Hey. Hey. Hello. <laughs> That's about as aggressive as it gets. I mean, 
it's pretty hard to get aggressive when you're. I mean, I've seen people aggressive on pot and. Yeah, but it's different kind. Yeah. I mean, apparently a lot of MMA guys are now uh, consuming cannabis uh, before fighting. Like they'll eat it, not smoke it. And uh, I, I suppose I, I've heard this, and I suppose at the at a small dose, it can really get you in your body, improve all types of awareness in the mind and the body, bring a sense of presence. So I can see how it could be useful. But you got to be careful because eating it, you know, a little too much is a bit too much <laughs> well it's one of the strongest psychedelics on the planet when you consume yeah it's a cannabis. totally different substance right it has a totally different mechanism in the body right yeah it's funny i've been doing uh like as a side gig i do this content editing work so i get um uh, like blog posts that are written for websites and the blog posts, their only purpose is to like, like uh, boost SEO. So just boost the standing in search engines. Like the more content websites have that mention certain keywords, right? The more easier they are to find. But, but this content is written by when I get, when it gets to me, it's written by people in India, uh, most likely India. And you know, it's, it, it's cheap labor but they're writing, you know, in English, but it's like Indian English. And it's really funny because one of the websites that I edit for is like a cannabis, a, a cannabis dispensary in Colorado. <laughs> and so I get these articles written by Indian guys, I imagine, about cannabis and just the way that they write about it. And the, the other company, well, I'll share that later, but the way that they write about it, you can tell that they these particular guys were writing have no experience with cannabis. And so <laughs> they're just writing a lot of like cliches about getting high and all, all this stuff. And I have to like edit it so that if anybody does stumble across it, it's doesn't look terrible. And also if someone who understands cannabis stumbles across it, it doesn't look totally like a five-year-old wrote it. So yeah, it's interesting. You know, what my favorite beer is, What's that? Of all time. It's called Hitachino. I'm I'm advertising it right now. They're not paying us, but Hitachino Brewery, if you're out there listening, uh I'm advertising for you. Hitachino White Ale. It's a Japanese beer. It's got a little owl on the label. It is the most delicious, amazing beer I've ever had. It's like a kind of like a fruity pale ale, but it's like kind of creamy but also really light and the, the flavor is just perfect, and I don't really like heavy beers anymore, IPA, stuff like that. This one just goes down like a most delicious, smooth. There's something special about it, so it, people who who can access it. I think in the States you can order it online, Hitachino Pale, uh, White Ale. You were selling it to me. I was like, mm. It's so good, man. Wow. I think Japanese people, like when they do something, they really do it right. They Award-winning Scotch whiskeys from Japan. They just there's an attention to detail and a and a passion for the product that they create, you know, that you don't see in many places. There's a pride, you know, and so they even take Scotch whiskey, which is from Scotland, and they make it, and they win awards. I mean, with with their methods. Have you ever watched the videos on YouTube of like ceramics makers from mm -mm. from Japan? Or uh, there's a one woman who. What does she make? Uh, she makes chairs out of bamboo. 
And it's like been a tradition that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. It's incredible. Wow. The preci- it's all done by hand. It's super precise. She doesn't have... It looks like there's no error to me. I mean, it looks like something that's been manufactured by a god. It's so perfect. Wow. There's another one. Uh, it's this hundred-year-old lady who uh, takes care of bonsai trees, who grows bonsai trees. Like Mr. Miyagi. Like Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> Was he a hundred? Uh, no, but he sure <laughs> took care of bonsai trees. He sure did. Made me always want to... I have a little mini bonsai over there on my wall. Oh, wow. Your bonsai looks amazing. Thanks, man. That's but legit, dude. It's a real bonsai. But this woman has a a 500-plus-year-old bonsai tree that's been passed down wow. from generation to generation, and it's huge. I mean, it's not... For a bonsai tree, it's big. It's it's growing over the side of the pot. It's it's just the most meditative, beautiful thing ever. Wow. It's almost like everything that's created in Japan is done with that, like you said, that precision, this meditative, one-mind precision. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a word for that. There's a word for, like, uh, that I learned from this documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Have you seen that one? I haven't. One of the, my f- best documentaries I've ever seen. It's about Jiro, who's, like, one of Japan's most famous sushi chefs. And he has a Michelin three-star sushi restaurant. And he basically can't even get a seat because it's just reserved years in advance. And there's, like, f- I don't know, six seats in this little spot. And his documentary documents every aspect of him. And he's probably 80 years old now. And from going to the market and selecting the fish and the detail that he's looking at in the fish to preparing the rice. So like he has, you know, these sous chefs working for him. And a guy, I think it's like, will spend 10 years just on rice as part of the learning process to become a sushi master. Just the rice alone. Right, that perfect sticky sushi rice. They'll spend ten years just on that station, and yeah, really amazing the attention to detail. And this guy, he just eats, sleeps, breathes. His life is just that. And there's something in Japan. There's like a term for it, where basically your whole life, every aspect of your life, is dedicated to this one job, one one um, trade, and you master it. And that's all you do. And you keep mastering. You keep getting better and better and better. So he's been making sushi since he was like a teenager. And that's all he ever does. And you just watch it. And it's the most simple sushi. It's just like rice and a slice of fish. But every detail is, it, it, it's, it's incredible. You, you just look at the way he cuts it. I mean, every aspect, nothing, nothing goes unseen or unattended to. It's a great documentary. I don't know if it's on Netflix or what, but uh, I highly recommend Jiro, Dreams of Sushi, a documentary about sushi. I like that. Well, I think that's something we're lacking in most of the Western world is like masters of a trade or people who really desire to master a trade or an art form or something like that. There are masters of art. I'm not saying they're lacking. Yeah, Zach. Zach's awesome. Also, another listener of ours, Galen, uh, does amazing woodwork. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. I want to post some uh, on our page. Or Galen, if you have any pictures of some of the work you've done, please post it on the page. But you can see the dedication, the time, the energy that they've put into their trade. And it shows that it's like, I think for me, <clears throat> I, asp- 
I want to aspire to do that as well. And especially like you are doing that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there's like, it's this continual journey of perfecting this tradition or learning to perfect as much as I can this tradition. But yeah, I think, I think there should be some sort of aspiration. I think the problem is attention spans. And I notice my own attention span can go from, I'm watching videos on YouTube of this amazing Japanese master bamboo uh, cutter to I'm now watching the Isle of Man TT motorcycle race. Now I'm watching yeah. the debate. <laughs> you know, right. it's just there's so many options and choices and, and flash right. and like, oh, you got to, oh, here's the new video of, you know, this guy you subscribe to and this guy you subscribe to. And it's like, so we spend our time watching videos of masters who, <laughs> instead of practicing to be a master at something. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it seems that in olden times, you know, in the pre and I don't know, 50 years or more ago, it was really pretty standard that you learned your father's craft. And it's like people have last names, Smith, because that's what that family did. Right. So, and it was just, that's what you do. There was no thinking about it or questioning it. It was, you learn your father's trade um, or you go apprentice with somebody from a young age at some other trade. And that's just what you do. And there was none of this existential questioning of like, it was simple, man. A lot of things were harder and there's a lot of blessings we have now to be able to sample different things and learn different things. But sometimes I crave that simplicity of just there's, this is what you do and there's not even a consideration to question it. And I, I I think a lot of satisfaction and fulfillment comes from mastering something. And, you know, I'm 40 years old now and it's just in the past few years that I've started craving, like I want to master something. And sometimes I kick myself, like I wish I had just stuck to something from when I was 15 years old and just not questioned it not allowed myself to be swept away by all the temptations of all these different things and you can do like just pick one thing and go for it obviously my life wouldn't be where it is today and all the amazing things i've learned and been exposed to as a result of the suffering that comes from not knowing what to do with my life but yeah there was a period where i was like i was looking up schools uh for woodwork to just like go go to a trade school and learn that just woodwork or uh while we were in europe i was like how am i gonna make money i thought about opening a ice cream shop and just going to gelato university it's actually a, a place in italy and just learning that so i at least there's jujitsu right i think we're both like that's something that i just want to keep doing and for me, mastery isn't even really about the outcome. It's just about a dedication to a craft or an art or a sport and just continuously learning and growing with it. And I think that's, for me, that's like an anchor in life. And maybe we can become masters of podcasting, masters of the mic. We're already starting. MCs. MCs, masters of ceremony. Whoa, you already are an MC, man. MC. You're an MC of ayahuasca. I mean, from now on, they, people should call you <laughs> MC. MC Felix. The MC, I'm, I'm Felix. I'm your MC. 
and uh, it's time to drink some ayahuasca. Ready for some great plant techno tunes, some icados. I, but I think, I mean, I, I have this quote. I just posted it recently on on my Facebook. It says, "Every master was once a disaster." Whoa, I love it. Right? I don't know who said it. I'll look at my Facebook and you'll find it. But um, yeah, I think it's the hardest part of the mastery is the starting. And it's like, man, if I want to learn how to work on cars, all I really have to, I could watch YouTube video after YouTube video, and it could actually teach me how to work on cars. I had this great book growing up. It was The Rebel Scholar or something along the lines. And in this book, this man, he would do a bunch of talks at high schools and whatnot. He was a high school dropout. And he wanted to learn how to program computers. So he went and bought a bunch of books on programming computers and learned how to program computers. And eventually became one of the main programmers for Apple and was making millions of dollars. And he would go to these schools and he would stand in front of these these students and he would be like, I dropped out of school. I think... You know, standard education is garbage because you can learn whatever you feel passionate about. You just have to do it. And that he would say, he he said in the book, he said, I, I would stand there and watch the faces of the teachers go from smiles and excitement to see me standing and talking to them to dread horror. <laughs> Man, I tried to learn programming once. I got really bored. and <laughs> That's what my dad did. Hey, dad. My dad listens to our podcast. My dad is a master of programming. You know, he's retired now, but in the old school tradition, that's that would have been my path. Um, and I remember as a kid, he, like, encouraged me to try, like, learn basic. And, but, yeah, I just, I just wasn't for me. I And I tried recently, too. I thought about, you know, learning how to, like, programming for websites and stuff. And it's just, well. Learning lines of code. And- yeah. Like HTML or Linux? Uh, um, no, H, uh, like backend stuff. So more like uh, Java and Java. Okay, uh, Java. Uh, I mean, different. There, there are a bunch of different languages. Python, but I, I don't know. I'm the wrong guy to ask. But th- basically, now there's all these schools training people for that specifically because obviously there's a huge demand. Everything's online now, and there's a specific kind of skill set of programming languages that you need to know but uh i often you know sometimes i'm just think i'm too old to master anything and i know that's not true and i think what's important for me at least is it doesn't matter when i start but if i just start something and stick to it like that feels good it feels good to make progress and uh right now that's jujitsu and that's this podcast and you know i noticed that we're improving just our way of speaking and uh, communicating on the podcast. If you listen to the first one, there there were more ums, there were more likes, there were more uh, interruptions. So that's something to master. Right? I think that's a very valuable skill. Uh, but but uh, yeah, just dedicating to something. And it can be multiple things. Um, a huge encouragement for me, though, is when I look on these jujitsu groups and I see 
70-year-old blue belts or 70-year-old purple belts. Amazing. You know, and it's... And they might die before they're black belt, but they're just, they're in it. They're, they're, they're in on it. the journey. And in the next life, they'll come back as a blue belt already. They'll be born with a blue belt. <laughs> the umbilical cord will be blue. That's probably bad, actually. <laughs> but I think about these things, too, because I'm about to have, speaking of umbilical cords, like, I'm going to be a father in about seven months or so. And, yeah, I just think about, like, how can I encourage the child? Like, I think every child is different. Some kids is just like when they're seven years old, they start playing soccer and they're just obsessed and it's pretty easy. You're like, all right, let's go with that. And you encourage that and you support it. Um, but I don't know. I just think about how, like, what's the role of the father in terms of guiding the life? Uh, you know, on one hand, like, being strict and like pushing the child into just just master something and he's going to resist sometimes or she and sometimes she won't but but just like really really or just leave it open and let the child just like jump from thing to thing and discover you know all these questions but i think that answer themselves once it happens like people say yeah once i became a father it just you just do it man and you'll make mistakes and but you just do your best and but yeah It'd be cool to uh, to at least play a role that encourages the child to really find something, a passion, and just go with that, you know? And fail. We talked about failure, but encouraging the child that failure is good. That means you're learning and growing. Yeah, I mean, there's 10,000 books on parenting. There's so many right books now. on parenting. There's, nobody knows how to parent a child <laughs> I mean, sure, we can do our best in in all circumstances, but it's like, you know, working with people in a sense of, like, healing, there's, there's always some kind of trauma in the child's life, no matter what, even if it's like, my dad didn't look at me, or my dad didn't come home one night, and then whatever. And it's like, you know, that's not really in our control. Maybe we had to work late or maybe, you know, the dad was distracted by something. And but it leaves an impact on the psyche. It's like it's such an interesting thing to raise a child who is watching and absorbing the entirety of its environment. So it's like when you have a child, it's like, what do I want to put into these programs, these especially these earlier programs? for this child and I love what you said about it's okay to fail and it's okay to I like the openness aspect and I appreciate that you know my mom and my dad they both supported this open ended like whatever you want I mean my dad was more kind of pushing me towards military and you know armed forces non-civilian lifestyles but at the same time there was still this sense of like Honestly, whatever makes you happy, go for it. And I, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's how my dad was too. He always and continues to encourage me, even if I, you know, moving to Peru, pursuing ayahuasca, you know, th that was not what he expected or he didn't even know that was a possibility in life. But, you know, he would say, like, I don't really understand what you're doing, but if whatever makes you happy. So I think that's great. And, 
that kind of encouragement and openness. I think it's a new way of of parenting where it used to be you kind of enforced what the child's going to do. You know, even picking their, arranging the marriage, you know, some traditions still do that. Uh, times have changed, man. Yeah. There's, there's like a, Ah, never mind. I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) Well, I'll give you a question in that. It's if you could look back at your life as a child, if you could imagine the perfect childhood, what would that even look like? Uh, I would be the greatest baseball player of all time by now. I would have just like... only played baseball because I loved it but we moved to France and there was no baseball I introduced baseball to France basically and uh, I don't know man my childhood was perfect because this is where I am it, it's we talked about this before but everything happens for a reason and I recognize that so sometimes I do sometimes I think about you know in my next incarnation like what would I want that to look like and I would love one incarnation of being the greatest of all time at a sport maybe baseball but I vi- envision it like I become the greatest of all time, and but then I use this platform to like help people and like, uh, it's like uh, talk about plant medicine because everybody's listening to the greatest baseball player of all time, and so I become like an advocate, you know, and use that platform and my billions of dollars to uh, encourage uh, natural ways of healing with plants, something like that. But it would be cool, man, to be the greatest of all time just like hitting home runs. I'd be a I'd be a pitcher, the greatest pitcher and the greatest hitter. I'd be both. Which is super rare. But I just hit home runs and strike people out all day. Was Lou Gehrig like that, I think? I don't uh I don't think Babe Ruth, I believe, was actually a pitcher first. Um I believe. Uh then he transitioned to not being a pitcher because he needed to hit because he was so good at it. But there's a guy Shohei Otani right now in Major League Baseball. He's kind of dropped off in the last year or two, but a Japanese guy, I believe he's Japanese, who's like prolific at both, but he's been injured a lot. But uh, yeah, anyway, this is baseball talk, but not everyone's into baseball. But yeah, he was a difficult player to manage because it's like, does he pitch or does he hit? How do you get both in there? Because uh, a pitcher can only pitch like every four days or so, a starting pitcher or so. So yeah, man, baseball. I, lo- I love baseball. What kind of ordinary things do you love, Felix? Ordinary. Jiu-jitsu. Brooklyn Five. five Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <clears throat> nine. I like cooking. It's like one of my favorite things to do. Your wife is a lucky lady, man. I just nonstop cook. Yeah. Well, I mean, right now it's kind of been the same routine of cooking. Uh, ordinary things. Uh, gangster rap? I don't know. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You're a big Wu-Tang guy. I love Wu-Tang. You can pretty much recite their entire collection. Oh, you don't even get me started. Wow, it's amazing. It'd be addiction. It's an addiction. Everybody, Felix has the most incredible memory. He memorizes, as you know, he quotes sometimes people, but he memorizes verbatim lines from films, movies. Is your memory photographic or like it is? It's photographic, yeah. So you, when you memorize like lines from a song, do you see the lines? Or do you hear the song in your head? More hear it. So you have a little bit of both. It's the the movies that that's the easiest to remember because it's like you see the image or the scene 
and then you have the whole context for the scene. Yeah. And you just, you remember what their, their intonations are. Do you find ayahuasca has improved your memory? Uh, hmm. In some ways, yes. And in other ways, no. In some ways, yes, because like seeing a clarity of a situation or a, a, a thing, absolutely. But the attachment to it is a lot less. So it's like I almost like kind of try and let the memory go more instead of like holding on to each because it, it happens sometimes where I remember this as a kid, especially where I would see somebody's face and they'd be angry and I get a snapshot of their face in this freeze frame of their angry plus the words. And it would just repeat over and over and over and over and over again in my head. And I was like, Ugh. and it's, it's, it was painful like that. And so as I started working with plant medicine. I realized I didn't necessarily need to hold on to negative impacts so hard, so strongly, I should say. And so now it's, yeah, sure, it's it's sharp, it's clean, but it's also like, do I even, there are things, do I really need to remember them? And like keeping more space and just being present instead of like keep bringing this repeating, repeating loop of whatever incident. So... Yeah, if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Yeah, memories are fascinating. Like, there's so much stored in this. I guess it's in our brain, or but it's there's so much there. Plant medicine showed me. Like it brought up memories that were so vivid from so long ago that I hadn't, hadn't thought about. So they had just been sitting there, stored somewhere, and those memories were activated. I found that a lot of times in my diets. I would find myself just going down memory lane and was like replaying my life. But oftentimes the memories, I would be replaying my life, but from a different perspective. And a lot of times like difficult times that I had, that part was erased from the memory. And I only saw the memory as like a great experience. So often in diet, I would sometimes I would go down memory lane of my time in New York. When I was in New York, I spent a lot of time depressed and, it was a struggle and confusion, depression, existential angst, not knowing who I am, what to do with my life. But the memories replayed and it was just, I was just having a blast and uh, having good food, good times with friends. And it was almost like the medicine helped to repaint my past in a way and integrate it all. And, and yeah, so it's like I'm re reliving my life through the lens that I currently have, which I think plant medicine has really helped to kind of clean it up the lens. So I'm seeing things differently. Uh, and sometimes it was painful because I would sit there in a diet. Oh, it's hot in the jungle, you know, I'm like, uh, and I just escaped these memories and I'd be like, oh, I just want to go back in time. Just want to go back to New York and eat good food and go to the comedy club. And, and I'm sitting here in the jungle and, so I found myself using it as an escape mechanism too, right? And my maestro, sometimes he would remind me, like he's, he'd be like, that's just the mind, you know, try to do these practices. Like you really, you know, it's all about presence as well. So, but I would spend hours, man, with, there's nothing to watch and nothing to read. I just often find myself slipping down memory lane. Read, reading your old memories. Yeah, exactly. Basically. Or watching them. Watching. It's yeah, more like a movie. Well, I spoke about Michael Talbot on a previous episode. Michael Talbot 
wrote the book, A Holographic Universe. And he also has a talk on YouTube called The Holographic Universe. But it's really interesting because there was a scientific study done on lab rats. And this man was trying to discover where in the mind memories were held. So what he started to do, and it's a bit gruesome, but he went into these lab rats and started cutting out pieces of their brain. And so what he found is that he could keep cutting out pieces of their brain, but they would still remember the maze that they had learned. And it came, there came a point where they, you know, this mouse was limping, it could barely move, it could barely open its eyes, but some part of it still remembered the maze. And so his theory was that, that memory is actually holographic. It's not like a linear, it's not a location-based thing, or it's, it's, it's in the entirety of the mind, because the whole mind lights up through experience, uh, this psychedelic experience of life. Um, this trippy experience that we're in. And uh, there was another book I read. It was How to Hack Your Mind. And in How to Hack Your Mind, this man was talking about how when he was 12 or 13, these guys, these bullies came out to beat him up. And he had recently been watching Bruce Lee, all these Bruce Lee movies and reading Bruce Lee books. And in that moment, when he was threatened with the potential to get beat up, all this memory, all this information of Bruce Lee and his movements came back, and he actually beat these kids up. And he went into this kind of trance state, he says, but he just he felt like he was Bruce Lee. He was like embodying or channeling Bruce Lee. And so it's like the further idea of this holographic memory is not necessarily that even your memory of your lifetime now is this linear thing that you're connected to, but you're actually connected to the memories of all beings around you somehow. All information, all past, present, future ideology, memories, experiences as before. And I, I, I want to learn how to hack my mind in order to figure out how to always tap into that. Again, we spoke in our last podcast of like experience of having these extreme connectedness-based uh, ceremonies with plant medicines. And it's, it's there, it's here, it's already here, but what what is it when I come back into everyday consciousness that limits my mind back into, I think I'm Felix walking around in my house and I'm going to make coffee in the morning and I'm going to sit down and do this thing and I got uh, I got to go to this Udubamba today and I, it's like this weird linear contraption that thinks it's limited. Why do I keep going back into that state instead of remembering this holographic hmm. world? Don't I mean sometimes I think we need that. We need that kind of ego linear just to function in the world. So I, I think there's there's also a reason that exists. How would you function if you were constantly in one of those elevated states of awareness that you come to through plant medicine? If if you're always in that state, would it be difficult to go to the market to buy a motorcycle so you can get around to drive the motorcycle. Uh, I, I think it there's some function to it, right? So maybe it comes back because we need it to navigate this physical realm. I think the function is that we've been trained in it and we've been trained to interact within that context. In fact, 
even within the English language, there's always this subject, uh, subject, object, whatever, mentality. So this me and the object. So I am here in the chair in our studio sitting outside. There's this like I and chair and here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a part of the training of how we should interact with people. One thing I, I think of often is saying, I am Felix. I, I'm not actually Felix. Identifying with this idea of Felix is very interesting. It's very limiting to me. So I try to say, my name is Felix. And it's like, I want to untangle myself from that web because within the context of being more expanded, being more open to what this world is, you're just more connected to it. You're not less connected to it. But there comes that ideology of, you know, you're crazy because you're going to talk about things that are very fringe. Like, oh, I can see this guy's thoughts or I can, you know, I can feel this woman's pain or this man's pain or this dog's pain. And it gets weird. And we kind of get this kind of like itchy sensation under our skin of like, ooh, you're, you've been taking too much of that sauce there, bud. You got to slow down on the sauce. And uh, I think of a talk by... Alan Watts, I'm quoting a lot of different things today, but a talk on Alan Watts where he talks about how in Western society, if you say you're God, they throw you in a mental award. In Eastern society, you say you're God, they say, congratulations, you you see how the world is. And there's these weird, especially within the mental realm or the mental matrix of the Western world, we have to be very careful of the edges of the road and when we start to veer off the side of the road a little bit, people start to look at us in a different way, and they're like, Ugh. And, uh, yeah, and it's not necessary. I'm not talking about being supremely enlightened where you're, like, floating around and you can just, you're just one with God. I think people who hit that state, they usually end up, they're in a mountain or a monastery, and they're far, far away. And that's probably the context they can only live in. Because coming back and trying to interact in the world of I need to buy some veggies immediately brings them back into the linear linear nature of my idea of me and you and that. And I need to buy that for me so I can eat. Mm-hmm. So I, I always, one of my odd fascinations is etymology and, and working with words. And I find that beyond the, words, beyond words, this is why I love beyond words. Such a great name. But I find that within linguistic limitations, or I, I find that within linguistics itself, we, we actually have a prison. There's also liberation within it. But as if we can fully understand, like you said about computer programming, if we understand the language of computer programming, we can do anything to a computer. If we understand the language that programs our mind, we can do anything with our mind. And I, and I want to live in a lifestyle that is open to that, not necessarily that I believe it 100%, but that play with that every now and again instead of getting trapped into I, my problem, my life, my... And of course it's necessary. I wouldn't be able to talk on a podcast if I didn't say I. I did this really fun thought experiment from Robert Anton Wilson. It's not from Robert Anton Wilson, but he suggested it where for a whole week, I didn't use I or me or any kind of personal pronouns at all. So in all of my conversations throughout the day, 
I didn't use I or me or I didn't even huh. refer to myself as this separate entity. And it was the strangest mind-altering experience I've, I've had outside of medicine. So what did you even talk about? Well, talked about life. So if I'm like, Felix, are you hungry? There's there's a possibility of eating, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Uh, Felix, how are you? Hmm. There are sensations here of oh my God. joy. It's uh, it's really it's challenging. It's challenging also it's for, hard. The, for the listeners. Yeah, no, it's it, like it, refer to yourself, man. That's right. really interesting. It's just as a as a game. And it's yeah. like I want to play these mind games with myself because I want to bend my mind in different shapes so I can see from different angles. But what about your mental dialogue? I'm, I imagine you Same. like me. So you even catch yourself. Yeah. If your mind's like, oh, I'm tired. Yeah. You're like, no. There's tiredness. There is fatigue. Or, or sleeping sounds appealing. Let's do the rest of this podcast like that. <laughs> Poor people would be like, I'm turning this off. This is so confusing. There is confusion, yes. <laughs> It's a fun it's a fun experiment. It's a fun experiment if you want to see how to bend your mind into new realms of through language. Of language. There's another experiment that I do recommend everyone try. Tries, tries, whatever. Um this also comes from Robert Anton Wilson. It's called uh he says it's I squared, it's intelligence examining intelligence. And it's utilizing or what he he has a different name for it. Anyways, he uses, he says, everything in your life, never say a definitive about something. Like, it's cold outside. You say, it may be cold outside. It may be, uh, I may be hungry. Mm -hmm. And when we use less definitives, we start to enter this world of uh, Tibetan Buddhism where something, you're in between. Like, it's mm -hmm. almost like Bardo state. Nothing's definitive. Or this state of quantum physics where... It may or may not be. The grass may or may not be green. Well, it's not green to me. I'm colorblind. <laughs> exactly. So it may or may not. So I can't. I start to step into this world where reality is less Nothing solidified. Is Nothing is definite. Yeah. And again, just as an experiment, if you try it for a day, if you try it for two huh. days, you start to allow reality to be more fluid and more open. Huh. That might be interesting. Maybe. Huh, I love that, man. I love that you do that kind of stuff. It's, it's like you don't need mind-altering plants or psychedelics to actually enter an altered state. You can do it simply through manipulation of language in your expression and your thoughts. But it's like a, the little comment I made of the psychedelic experience of life. Man, this, we are in the most immersive psychedelic experience it's so strange this mm -hmm. whole thing is strange totally you know that brings to mind like when we facilitate retreats and people are sharing about their experience and we always frame it you know generally like the facilitators where we worked it's like one of the ways to one of the guidelines for sharing is to only speak in the first person i because what often happens is yeah the, uh, so i'm sharing my experience yeah, the medicine was amazing, and it showed me that you really need to just just really breathe and 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 be present with what's coming up, and and you know you 
you can you can just relax and you 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 know and so th- these things that we do without really thinking about it uh also kind of completely give a different feel of what we're trying to express and even now i'm saying we but the encouragement was to actually really own it because if you say you or we you're basically defining everybody else's experience and you know i see a lot of that in the dialogue right now uh just in like political dialogue and stuff where it's like we need to do this we need to heal we need to come together it's like and i'm thinking like well i i'm you don't need to tell me that like not that i'm healed or but but it's just this this enforcement of you know we we all have to and yeah i don't like it <laughs> well it it's almost like this person is assuming they already speak for everyone or this person is and and i try to do this on the podcast too i'm aware of there cuz it's like this natural habit i do it habit. all the time yeah i say we a lot yeah like we we and and maybe i refer to you and i because we have similar lifestyles you can assume that i probably agree with you i can assume maybe yeah but i i shouldn't i shouldn't make that assumption that and that's why i think it's challenging when we select leaders period any kind of like and we talked about this with gurus so we the we we did talk about this (laughs) well that's a legit use of we because we actually did we actually did speak of this we talked about gurus and this this putting our faith or our direction of awakening or our what we should do with our lives on somebody else. And why, why am I already doing that? Why would I ever want to give my, my freedom, my liberty, my random weird life to somebody else's hands? I know, man. It's like there's in the States now, it doesn't matter what side you're on, but you know, it seems that Biden has won the election and there's people that are just that like three weeks ago, were just expressing how horrible everything is and they were just miserable and depressed and angry for the past four years. And now they're dancing in the streets and just like jubilation and like they're so excited. They're a different person. And it's like all of that because of some dude you don't even know (laughs) is now the figurehead of your country. Your whole life and how you feel is is dependent on who is the president who that's a roller coaster of a life wow <laughs> because yeah we, we we i i know for myself also especially in the past had a tendency to pin all of my hopes and dreams on somebody else on an outcome and the recognition that uh it doesn't matter who's in charge ultimately i mean what you know we are my happiness is determined by me and how i respond to life and and where i where i pin my allegiance really and ultimately i pin my allegiance on what i perceive as god or uh or the deep knowing within because we can't even really pin it on, at least me, like I can't even pin it on my wife. I, my happiness can't be determined by my wife either. You know, that's that's called codependency, right? And I've been down that road before too. And 
you know, my current relationship, I'm really blessed to be with someone who also sees what that is. And it's been a, a navigation of that as well, for me at least, of learning to hold space for my wife's experience while still maintaining my, well, in some ways, not not being swept up by it. Like my allegiance ultimately is not to any human being. I love human beings, but all my hopes and faith and and the meaning of my life is not determined by other people. And so we just see this with these elections. And four years ago is, you know, another side of people, all of a sudden everything is perfect. And, but it's just, what happens is a few days or weeks go by and everybody who is now super happy about the new president forgets that, that they had pinned all their hopes and dreams on that. And then the old, the old, misery and patterns slip back in and so then you know when that happens for me then i have to try to find something else to blame that on because it's it's really also just wanting to find a reason outside of me for my suffering some but generally a person so you know this autopilot mode of just going around and just trying to find who to point the finger at for everything that's wrong with my life we 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 Oui, bah oui, euh, français, euh, bah oui. oui. No, but I, I just, uh, the only reason I'm saying we oui is I think within that, this unconscious programming of saying you, like when we were talking about people talking about their experiences, you naturally start to feel, I think within that programming, there's an automatic identification with the leader when they say that. If you agree with this person in some form mm. or another, You start to agree more and more, or I start to agree more and more with, oh, I identify with you. Because it's we. Oh, you included me. Right. Like so Obama's, we're a group now. Obama would say, yes, we can. Right. And that was really appealing. His slogans were like, huh, interesting. I felt like a part of that movement. Right. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Well, that sounds great. I'm going to agree with that. And yeah. even within that slogan, so there's a little little side note on that. Slogans are, they're sigils. They hold Ooh. power. They're ways to like attract things. So like to certain slogans like Nike, just do it. You know that. Or ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And I know. I'm loving it. Exactly. Everyone hears that. Sorry, I shouldn't have put that out there. It's, It's a sigil. It's something that attracts your mind like a fly to a magnet to identify with this. That, that, that little thing that you just did shows how much of an imprint that company had on you on your mind wow and everyone oh. who repeated that same line everybody did it too and it's in all different langu languages too that's interesting so if obama's slogan if he wanted to be a little more considerate with that slogan it would have been instead of yes we can it would have been uh possibly i might be able to and <laughs> i'm happy for you to join me Or, or yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. Oh. Because again, it's like... Yes, you can. Let's, that's more empowering. It's more empowering. But yes, we can is like... It's like we have to... You, you need me. Right. Together. And it's like we have to be aware of... We talked about... Yes, you can. Mental spider webs. These mm -hmm. spider webs. These little things that we've created over our times through different connections. Well, 
advertising, people who are in advertising or in politics, they know that very well. And they know keywords to trigger your spider web to make it bounce. Uh, they did a good job because I often watch my mind reciting ads from the 90s. They, it's they're still very there. good at it. You know, the stupid ad that's somewhere, I've been trying to puke it out. And I've, I've actually had experiences of puke, puking out commercials that I've watched in ceremony. Wow. Purging these these things that have made had an impact on my mind. One of them is another McDonald's thing that just like I'm trying to forget it, (laughs) but it's there. It was the fillet of fish. Do you know the fillet of fish? I know the sandwich. Give me that fillet of fish. I don't know that one. No, don't put it in there, man. Oh my lord! This stupid commercial, and I I am not a fan of McDonald's. I think they're the antichrist anyways <laughs> i'm not a fan of mcdonald's anyways uh that that stupid commercial played on the radio once every 20 minutes every 15 minutes oh they were just putting it in there and man if this repetition thing this is again going back to what we're taught in school uh, we're getting it well this is we're going down some conspiracy i holes. love it man let's go deep let's go deep well this is what they teach you in school repetition 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 and we even said that in the beginning to become a master, it's repetition, it's learning, it's and that's true, but it's always dependent on what's being what we're being told yeah. to repeat. With advertising, we become masters of consumption, right? So advertising is like a war for our minds. Absolutely, one hundred. It's a war to program us. Absolutely. And <clears throat> some, yeah, wow. I'll give you a good example: is the some of the Prozac commercial or like an antidepressant commercial. I'm not saying antidepressants are bad. Some people need them. Some people have chemical imbalances in their brain. I'm not saying they're bad. Are you but, saying they're bad, dude? You got something against them? But, <laughs> but in the commercials, you have this thing that triggers you emotionally. Oh, yeah. It's the weirdest thing. It may not even be connected. I got on a medication because of commercial. Strange. When I was like 21. Why? It was called Paxil. And I was depressed, I Paxil. but Paxil, it was being advertised as a social anxiety disorder medicine, medication. And I was in college and I was shy and I wanted to meet girls, but I was afraid to talk to them. And this commercial, there's just this guy. And at first, you know, before Paxil, he's just sitting alone, just like, eh. and it's like, do you have social anxiety disorder? And they list all the traits, which is basically, are you shy? And then he took Paxil and he was just like talking to everybody, life at the party, having a blast. And the next day I went to the doctor and I just listed out all the symptoms that I heard on the TV uh, and I said I, I think I need, I need to have social anxiety disorder and, uh, and he gave me Paxil it's just like just like that and it was it messed me up too um, it did help though for a minute <laughs> but it was just masking a deeper you know a deeper thing that I needed to learn and grow through so yes um, that's that's it's so obvious, and yet I rarely take the time to really consider what it is, and it's just programming. A lot of commercials, you'll notice, don't even really have any value. They're not interesting. There's no artistic value. It's just to get it in there. And how that impacts, well, if, I, you know, if I'm at the supermarket and maybe for the past few days I've been seeing an ad for, like, Folgers coffee, whatever. The best part of waking up is Folgers. So so I'm in the aisle and I, and I see the selection of coffee and the ad might not even come to mind, but the programming is subconscious and 
in the moment, I just select Folgers for no apparent reason. I don't really think about it. I'm just like, eh, they're all the same. I'll just, I'll take this one, Folgers. But what actually is, is there's a subconscious trigger happening because it's been embedded in there. And somewhere in me, there's a belief that the best part of waking up is with Folgers in my cup. That's really, that's really fascinating. Or driving on a road trip and there's, like in most small American highway towns, you have options of fast food. That's it. So you see all the signs popping up on the horizon. You got McDonald's, you got Burger King, you got Subway, KFC. And maybe, you know, that ba-da-ba-ba-ba is just back in there. And, and that's what's actually bringing me to that to the golden arches, which are also designed. I mean, there's so much symbolism in the golden arches. I mean, <sighs> Wow. So the doesn't even matter what they sell. It's like that's why advertising is such a huge industry. It's how do you get into our brain? But and there's a an amazing South Park episode on advertising. It's incredible and it's deep. It's it's actually really creepy. But uh in this thing in this in this episode uh I can't remember who the main, who character was, but they were on their computer and all these... Oh, it was Stan. Stan was on the computer and these ads kept popping up for these new guitars and new shoes. And they were trying to get this information online and they were looking for it, looking for it, and then this new ad would pop up. Oh, get these new shoes. And then they... Like, it would do a cutscene and all of a sudden they're at the shoe store trying on shoes eating ice cream. And one of the... I think it was Jimmy. Jimmy started to see that there were ads in everything and then there were ads in people people became living ads have you ever enjoyed a product so much that you just had to sell your friends on it man you really gotta try this beer it's a chino white ale but there's no commercials for that it's genuine experience that's sure. the best kind of advertising great Someone but it's the best kind. In it. it's the smartest it's the most ethical too, I think, because someone believes in your product, so they want their friends to also enjoy it. And I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong. To, I mean, it's a kind of a way to make money today is advertising, but it's like there's something in that. There's something in that the thing that ads are getting smarter. They're getting more intelligent, especially as we hopefully become more intelligent or more aware or more whatever. It's like the ads have to find new ways to of hack in. in. Yeah. So man, it's really, I mean, this is a rabbit hole, but like how much of our decision making is just purely programmed, especially when it comes to purchasing products and things like that. But maybe even in other areas, it's like th these things we don't really think about consciously. We just make choices. Like it's, we're also programmable computers. So we have this free will and this creativity that we can tap into, but we can also go into program automatic response mode and which is, you know, a program created by, f for me, years and years and years of television as a child. And, and probably even now we're exposed to ads without even knowing it, right? There's just subliminal advertising, there's billboards, so even driving down, there's a billboard. You don't really even read it, but it just, it enters. The, the memory captures those words, and it, there it is. Well, the main part of your eyeball 
The iris? The iris is your conscious mind. It's your conscious awareness, what you're looking at. The side, your peripheral, is all subconscious. This is why sometimes you'll subconsciously reach out and grab something as it falls and you won't even know and you're like, oh, I've got superpowers. Actually, no, you tapped into a greater part of your mind, a more intelligent part of your mind that grabbed the cup before it hit the ground. So when you're driving down the road and you're looking straight ahead and you're watching the cars, still out of the periphery, you'll see that sign for McDonald's or Burger King. Oh, wow. I, we've talked about this before, but, you know, I, I've had a ceremony where I'm 80s cartoons are, like, coming up. I'm, like, purging He-Man. I used to watch He-Man. And, I don't know, a few months ago, I went on YouTube and I just watched some of these cartoons I watched as a kid. They're all there. He-Man, uh, Transformers, GoBots. Uh, there were many others, Thundercats. And... But I watch him, especially He-Man. I'm like, it's just so weird. It just, conspiracy alert, conspiracy theory. Like, was there some kind of intention behind that in order to program children? I don't know. But it's, it's so dark, that show. It's, and all these cartoons that I watched, a lot of them were made by the same guy. He was behind all these really kind of shitty 80s cartoons. But there's the kid's mind is so malleable and so vulnerable. And back then, I mean, there just wasn't awareness. What parents did is we parents parked their kids in front of the TV and just, you know, I trust it's Saturday morning cartoons, but the messaging that goes through those cartoons gets absorbed at a crucial stage of development, it becomes the program, the operating system of the child. I don't know how He-Man affected me, but I think that it probably gave me some kind of a, a dark outlook on the world in a way. That, that show, the whole time, it's nighttime and it's thunder and lightning and there's scary ghosts and, and then this He-Man who says, I am He-Man, I am He-Man, master of the universe. I think the biggest thing with any kind of media consumption is what it does to the self-image. So we compare ourselves or... We want to be like this character. We want to be skinny like the magazine says we should be. We want to be muscular like the magazine says we should be. There's an image that is sold throughout all media that is, yeah, this image of what... You need to be something else. I, I I literally cannot pick up magazines. They actually make me feel ill. Even if they're like well-intentioned, they still have this edge towards you need to be something different, self-improvement. Here's the better aspect of you. Man, the better aspect of you is going to be discovered by you, by yourself, in your room, when you're reflecting on yourself and what makes you happy. Nothing else doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's the new iPhone 12 that looks super cool. That's not going to make you happy. Sorry, it won't, period. A brand new shiny Corvette, whatever, or Ferrari. Woo, great. That's not going to make you happy, period. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. For a, for a minute, maybe. Cool. There's a dopamine rush. Yeah, yeah. This is the thing in, in buying things. This is why you see so many new, 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 new only today, all big sale, sale, sale. These things are 
utilized to trigger your dopamine buttons. Facebook is utilized to trigger your dopamine buttons. Instagram, same thing, dopamine buttons. Little video games, same thing, dopamine buttons. If we know how to push dopamine buttons, if you knew how much dopamine controlled your life, you would probably just become a monk in a cave and never want to do anything ever again. I mean, it controls everything, right? Everything. Are you hungry? There's a possibility of hunger. <laughs> what do you feel like eating? Well, what's going to trigger my dopamine the most? Salty, sugary, snacky. What is it? So, anyways, if if anything we can synthesize from all of this is the necessity of self-programming or deprogramming. Untangling ourselves from the mess of unconscious triggers that push us and pull us in different places of our lives. Music. Like I said, gangster rap. I love it. Like, old school hip-hop is amazing to me. I love it. But they say some of the same things all the time. Gotta get that money. Gotta get that money. Cash rules everything around me. Cream. Get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. Right. So, if I can synthesize everything down to its core, money. Money triggers everyone. Man, sex if you, and money. Sex and money. If you get money, boom. These are it's your it's connected to your livelihood. It's connected to shoot, even on the dollar bill it says God. In God we trust. Who's the God? Money? Who's ruling the throne? And uh I listen to this one guy occasionally. He's he's pretty amazing. He hits some key points a lot. His name is Seven Bomer. Seven Bomer says there's a throne in your head. And our whole life is dedicated to fighting to put ourselves back in that throne in our head. But somebody else is ruling it for a lot of people. McDonald's. McDonald's. Money. Advertisements are in the throne. Money. Sex appeal. Uh, Leaders of state, country, whatever. Leader gurus. Joe Biden's in the throne. It doesn't matter. There's somebody there, and sometimes they're a, they're an amalgamation of all these different products we've consumed. Or and some ideas. of them we've willingly put there, and some of them they were kind of put there because we absorbed advertising and messages and right. programming. That's a really that's a really useful image. I wonder, as a practice, to just visualize yourself getting into that throne. Every time I do, it's like trying to push somebody out of it first. <laughs> That's interesting, man. So, and again, like, yeah, this sounds very fringe, very conspiratorial. No, it doesn't. But it's, yeah, I mean, I mean to some people, this, this turns them off. As soon as they think programming, they start to be like, oh, okay, yeah, the gov- somebody's programming me. Yeah, sure. I mean, why is it called television programming? I mean, and what is even what is an argument? If I'm trying to convince someone of my point, I'm essentially trying to reprogram them. But I'm doing it openly, so the hope is that they they willingly take on the program that I want them to take on, so, which is usually towards some kind of goal. Yeah, sometimes the goal, if I'm arguing with someone, is just that I feel better when they agree with me. You know, probably most of the time, or I feel good when I'm right. So, like in the throne of my throne, one of my thrones. It, one of the kings in the throne is uh, feeling 
validated or that I'm right. It's not me in the throne. It's, it's, I'm looking for validation to prove that I'm worthy. And by people agreeing with me, that's one way to do it. Isn't that what everybody's trying to do? Trying to get well, everyone validate to agree that with their them? throne's the right throne. Their king is the right king. Okay, you, you agree with my king? I like the king in the north, man. Right. All right. Well, I like the king in the north too. Cool. But John now Snow. we have that we both we both were in the same team. We know that we we align with this one king. We better we better make sure that we keep supporting him and should or we'll fight to the death to show this king that we are loyal to this king. I've I've seen people fight to the death talking about their product that they love, that they want everyone to partake of. Oh man, no, I I know you I know you use the the iPhone, but man, my Android, whew, you, I can't even tell you how good my Android is. Did you fight is. to the death for that? No, I don't, <laughs> I don't even care about it that much. I see what you mean, though. Huh, so we're just going around battling for legitimacy of our own program. Right, well, legitimacy of the, the one that we've bought the most. It's like, man, I've been sold a lie, but I really have to make sure that I validate that my lie is still the right lie. And I, oh, this guy does too. All right, we're still on the right path. This herd mentality is, it's creepy. You know, group psychosis is a real thing. Oh, for, for sure. It's a real thing. We're seeing that, man. I had a kind of a revelation in jujitsu today, in my lesson. Um, and it, it was, we talked about this, but it was just around what it means to be in my power. And so in jiu-jitsu, when we're sparring, when we're rolling, if I'm rolling with someone who's really intense and they're trying to move real fast, and I have a tendency to to also try to match that. And so I'm essentially letting them dictate me. And the revelation was like, you know, the only way for me to effectively do what I need to do, I need to slow down. And so... I can actually choose to go really slow and be very deliberate. And the other person goes fast and freak out as much as they want. But there's something about that's power. It's like being in my, choosing my pace with it. And the best jujitsu people are the ones that determine the pace. They determine the flow. They hold that power. And, How often in life are we giving that away, you know, putting someone else in the throne, letting them determine the pace of life, letting them determine uh, what what's good and what's not, what 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 we need, what we don't need. Jiu-Jitsu, we always talk about this. It's just it's just such an amazing metaphor that applies to all areas of life. It's all meant, it's all mind in the sense that... Um, It's like all the interactions in life that we have that are essentially oftentimes power struggles. Jiu-Jitsu brings it into the physical realm, but it's the same kind of rules. And it shows me very clearly what it means to give away my power versus come back into it. Uh, And so, yeah, that's what I'm learning now is to just determine the pace for me, not let the other person determine how fast or slow this goes. Our teacher, Chase, he's a very deliberate, slow jiu-jitsu guy. 
he doesn't thrive on athleticism athleticism and quick reactions and all that he's just he sees very clearly what's going on and and he'll even telegraph it in like he's going to choke me and he's going to go very slowly about it and i'm freaking out and i see it coming and then there it's done so i think that's a really really important uh teacher that i think just relates to all of this so how can i felix how can i um undo some of these programs and and why why would i want to because i feel pretty good Whoa, uh, yeah mcdonald's commercials why running in the background to? but uh you know I'm, I'm i'm all right right why would you want to well i'll answer that first you would want to because your mind is not your own mm-hmm. if i am literally consuming hours upon hours of television programming hours and hours days and days i'm literally starting to embody this programming of how to see the world like bill hicks said you ever watch cnn headline news for any extended period of time it's the most depressing fucking thing you will ever do war famine death aids homeless depression recession And you look outside your window and where's all this shit happening, man? Well, they want that to be your life. There's a, I don't want to say they, there's a, a mentality that comes through consuming that layer of media. Like if you're, if, if, if we're afraid, then we can be controlled. If we're afraid, if we think that China's going to bomb us or North Korea's going to bomb us. Or that we're going to get murdered because that's all we see on TV. I'm scared. I I'm probably shouldn't go out of my house. I probably should always watch my neighbor. I probably should make sure uh, I can trust people. So I should. So that keeps me from being in my own throne. Instead, fear is in the throne. Man. And I'm a subservient citizen. And that's the biggest thing. That's that. That's why we should take it back because... of the programs that are fed to us are fed through fear. Why are horror movies so popular? (laughs) I mean, don't they just... Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know. (laughs) I hate them. (laughs) I hate them too, but they are. People love them. Why is Halloween such a huge... You used to love them, right? No. You never liked them? No, I never did. Think of of my memory... (laughs) And think of what oh, happens yeah. when you see something terrifying and you get to repeat that yeah. over in your head. So even, I mean, this is funny. It's so, an adrenaline rush, right? It's it's a dopamine. It's it's a type of dopamine, but it also comes with stressors. And like it, it triggers a lot of different buttons that aren't necessarily good buttons to trigger. And for some re- pe- reason, people like to be afraid. <clears throat> it's, a, it's an addiction. And that's why people ride roller coasters. That's why people do... Th- Things that give them a thrill, this like, ah, I'm going to die, ah, I'm okay. There's a heightened adrenaline state. But man, those those images stick in our minds, whether we're aware of it or not. And I shared the example of somebody who came and worked with me, and they sat down, and I saw all of these horror figures, figures like um, the clown from It!, I've never seen the movie It. I've seen that stupid clown all over the freaking internet all the damn time, but I've never seen the movie. I see that stupid red balloon and all these 
stupid pictures, but I've never seen the movie. And it's coming out of this person. And in other horror movies, uh, Saul, and all these weird, like, violent, terrible, dark movies. And they have an impact on my mind. They have an impact on my mind. I remember being a kid and watching A Sixth Sense. To me, that was one of the scariest movies I watched. Because <laughs> I didn't like horror movies. And there's a, I still see it in my mind to this day. There's a scene where the kid is looking down the hallway and there's a little kid at the end of the hallway and he says, hey, do you want to see where my dad keeps his gun? And the kid's just staring at him, the main character. And then the kid turns around and there's a huge hole in the back of his head. And I see that and I'm like, oh, and it, it's freaky. And man, you know what? My initial hesitation of meeting spirits was my fear of ghosts from movies, from books, from, I don't know, Goosebumps. I read Goosebumps as a kid. I don't even know why. I didn't. It's strange. So, from a personal perspective, I wanted to free myself from any kind of external influence. It doesn't mean I'm not perfect at this. I'm still freeing myself from all these influences. I'm still untangling myself from all these influences. But I want to be as free as possible, which means being able to touch on all these different ideas and believe them and then disbelieve them. And uh, an incredible practice comes from... um, I can't remember the book right now. It's, It's from Egypt. It's either the Book of Thoth or the Emerald Tablets or something like that. But in this book, he has an exercise of taking every idea that's in your head and balancing it with the complete opposite. And that's a way to start deprogramming yourself because everything becomes neutral. Yeah, you neutralize the thoughts with a counter thought. Even if they're good ones. Interesting. That's one way to do it. Huh. So, I, I, you know, what I get from this is just how, just a reminder of how important it is to really be aware of what I consume with media, especially. Because I, I believe that, you know, like that scene in The Sixth Sense basically causes the same response and trigger in your brain and body as if you actually saw that. Uh you know, the difference would be that in a movie, at least for me, there's a part of me that's like, oh, it's just a movie, just a movie. But immediately, the, it's the same mechanism that's triggered. And I can only imagine, like, what would my, what would I be like? How would my experience of life be if I only watched violence in horror movies? Which, you know, that's that's a big, big portion of the content that we see out there. It's dark, violent horror movies not just horror movies, but violent movies, uh, movies with terrible outcomes and disasters. So we just consume that, and then I walk around, and I'm in fear, and I don't even realize it because it's just how I'm used to being, and I'm closed off, and and that fear is in the throne of my mind, and I make choices in life that are essentially, at their core, designed to help protect me and keep me away from the clown and it or whatever it is. And so I'm not actually fully empowered in living my life and benefiting from all the 
amazing possibilities in life because I'm in the prison of fear that's not that dissimilar to someone who is legitimately traumatized uh, by real experiences. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's the same thing. I, I don't know if you've had this experience. <clears throat> have you ever, as a kid, had to go downstairs at night and turn off the lights that are downstairs and have to walk up the stairs yeah. and feel like there's something following you? Say, or hallways, yeah. And you think, or you, and then you see the image from the film or you see the incidents from the film. That's the kind of impact it has. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be like, this is how you should live your life. Don't ever watch movies. Don't ever consume media. Don't ever do... No, 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 no. But if you can be aware of what you're consuming, you can change your programming quite a bit. To this day, I have a moment of fear when I go into a bathroom and there's a bathtub and the curtain is closed and I need to open the curtain to you know, start the shower. And it comes from watching the movie The Shining and because uh, Stephen King book with Jack Nicholson and in the movie uh, there's a scene where I think the kid pulls back the curtain on the bathtub and there's this like h- horrific looking half dead woman demon thing. And to this day, man, I'm afraid of what's behind the shower curtain. And I've watched that movie once, maybe twice, but it impacted me. I watched it as a kid. And so, yeah, there's just those moments. And so that's an interruption in my flow through life. I go back into this fear state for a moment and, and it affects me. It impacts me to this day. I just re- realize that, you know, deprogram it. So now imagine like a beautiful young woman <laughs> sitting in the bathtub or just a bathtub. My wife said, yes, my wife, <laughs> uh, or just about an empty bathtub. And balance, it's like bringing that idea back into balance. Mm-hmm. So it's currently out of balance. That that image, that your inner reality is that movie. Your inner reality is there's that scre- creepy demon lady in the bathtub, in your head. That's your reality. And somebody's put an imprint there. Mm-hmm. And you live your life to that imprint. So I can proactively just as an exercise every time I go into the bathroom when that thought comes up stop and imagine nothing there why not neutralize it neutralize it or what is the complete opposite of that God's in the bathtub oh wow God and God I wouldn't even know what that looks like whatever and and, and it, again, it's just or just beauty and life and joy. And there's something good in the bathtub. Flowers. Yeah, it's something that's the complete opposite of this creepy demon lady. Although, if I opened the bathtub curtain, I saw God, or if I saw a bunch of flowers and butterflies, that would probably freak me out too. Like, <laughs> because of that image, this is the thing. Yeah. This is the thing that that worries me is because people are unwilling to meet divinity because or beauty, they're so or, or afraid life or love. Yeah, they're so afraid of. All of it. Because divinity is ugly as well. In their minds. Right. And divinity can hide behind a shower curtain. But, again, the, the, the main point I want to press is that in everybody's head, everybody who's listening, myself included, there is a world. And that world is made up of imprints. 
or spider webs or whatever you want to call it. These webs of experience, of uh, songs I love, of movies I love. And I movies have, you hate. Exactly. And I have all these mirrors in that world of when I want to be like Tyler Durden from Fight Club. Or I want to be like Rambo. And they're false, but they're imprinted there. What I've found with exploring this realm, with this world, is that I can utilize those programs to my benefit. They don't have to be used against me in a subconscious way. For example, Clint Eastwood. Man, Clint Eastwood's cool. I really like Clint Eastwood. In his old Western movies, he's got a behavior, he's got a mentality, he's got this persona that exudes self-confidence and fearlessness. I'm going to take that. I'm going to use like, okay, maybe in this moment I'm, I'm really afraid, I'm nervous, I'm shy. I'm walking into a room of people I don't know. Oh, what would Clint Eastwood do? All right, walks in. Doesn't really react much. He kind of looks around, gives eye contact to people. Here's a mentality. All right, I've got this little tool of Clint Eastwood. So thanks, programming. You've given me a little key. You, do you know what neurolinguistic programming is? NLP. NLP. Yeah. yeah. And it's you know its name pretty much states what it is. It's neurolinguistic, so programming the brain through language, and it's used therapeutically. It's also used deviously in in a lot of advertising. There's actually some NLP skills applied to it, but but you know for a while in my, in my 20s, I would go through a lot of like self improvement books and tapes and or CDs and some of them were people that were trained in NLP and they would give kind of exercises and so one exercise like I had a fear of you know if I was going to an interview right a job interview I'd be really nervous and I would do this exercise where it's NLP so basically I, I close my eyes and I imagine myself I'm in a theater and I'm on the screen I see myself at the interview and I just kind of look at that self. And then what I do with that image that I'm seeing in my mind's imagination is I turn up the volume on me. So in other words, I see me on the screen having the interview and I blow myself up to huge proportions in that room. So I'm much bigger than anybody else. And I turn up the, the color and everything. So I'm just like bright and big. And I just do that for the interview. And I just sit with that. And I, and I repeat it a few times. So essentially I'm just reprogramming myself so that I can go into that room with, with the confidence. And it's a really powerful, I love to explore that more. I have friends, a friend specifically that's, you know, really trained in it and actually incorporates it with how he works with people with plant medicine and helping them to sort of reprogram their, their response to certain memories and traumas that they have to basically change it, uh, through, through that, through that intentional reprogramming, manipulation, but a, a good manipulation like of the mind. So it, it just made me think of what you talk about in terms of neutralizing the thought or using Clint Eastwood. So another NLP technique would probably be, um, you know, I see myself on the screen and then I become Clint Eastwood and I 
term, blow that up a lot. And all the great qualities that I admire about that, that character, that persona, I just watch that play out in the interview. And then I'm, I'm primed. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go for it. I think a lot of athletes also use this with visual visualization exercises um, that they do before the game, you know, where they visualize exactly how they're going to perform and, and they visualize themselves taking the last minute shot and it, it goes in and, and there's all these tools and techniques to actually do exactly what advertising and programming has done to us, but we choose to do it to our advantage and benefit. Uh, yeah, that's hacking cool. the mind. Hacking, yeah, hack is such, that word is just tossed around everywhere now. It's like yeah, hack, hacking, hacking, hack, life hacker as a website. I know. I, th- I thought I coined it when I would talk to guests that would come here. I'm like, you know, my main thing is I like to hack the mind, my own mind. And I'm like, oh, wait, now there's like all these, pr- like, <laughs> everything's about hacking. This is really a hack your mind, hack your mind to be a better athlete. And it's like, oh, cool. I suck at coming up with my own jargon. Yeah, I, I think of an Alan Watts talk. And in this talk, he has this uh, scene that he sets up and it's, the student goes to his master and the master says to him, show me the purest expression of yourself. Well, I wouldn't know what to do. And the student, the student leaves and he has to think about it and he thinks, okay, well, what's the purest expression of myself? And he goes back to the master and he goes, uh, hmm. Oh, sorry. Let me go back a bit. So he thinks about it for, for weeks, for months. So he comes in and he brings a toad. And the master goes, too intellectual. Okay. I don't get it. Why do you bring it? Okay. Yeah. He's trying to find a way to express himself. And he goes out and he tries it again. He just just can't figure out how to give a true expression of himself. And I, I am trying to find that. The truest expression of myself and that that takes time of excluding all of these influences of, of almost deleting all of these influences, all of them, whether they're good or bad and trying to find the truest expression of myself. And it's the hardest thing to find. What happened in that, with that story from Alan Watts, did the guy find it? Maybe he doesn't really say, but he uses it as like a tool to start moving the mind in different ways. And again, that's that's my goal is to keep moving my mind in different ways to try and see the angle of the truest expression of myself. Yeah, what does that even mean? I mean, this is something I've thought about a lot and kind of talked about just in related to politics right now and the division. But when I really look at it, at least in myself and also observing that none, nobody on either side is actually truly expressing their own opinion it's just they've adopted one one argument one side or another and just just the idea that nothing is true that's what culture is though right yeah. so and i don't know i there, i don't think there's anything wrong with culture I, I love culture it's interesting but essentially it's an agreement it's an adoption of a story that we all agree on and that's our culture but when it's dangerous is when we fight for that, that we fight for that, we go to war for that, for that program. 
And that's all we're ever fighting about. Ideas. And the really dangerous ideas are like, we're on the side of God. And God said, conquistadors, inquisition. So in that instance. It's a story about God. It's not God. But in that instance, God becomes the devil. Exactly. So what is, yeah, what is the devil? The devil is a program. The devil is that which divides. The devil is just a story. It's just a story. It's a program. I heard one teacher, he's, he has like a Christian background, and that's exactly what he means by the devil. He means like the lower mind, the ego, the program, that's essentially the devil and like so you know in his interpretation is like nobody nobody's evil but many people are slaves of the devil of the program they've embraced it completely but the good news is anybody can come out of that can let it go the devil's a tricky one. You ever watch uh, Waterboy? Yeah. Adam Sandler? Yeah, yeah. His, his mom, played by Kathy Bates. Foosball is the devil. <laughs> Everything was the devil to her. <laughs> it was pretty hilarious. But she was like really mean and angry. Wow. Yeah. So the devil, yeah, it's like... You always picture the devil as like this being, you know, red with a tail and horns. But really, if we take it to the next level, the devil is the program. Because it's like we have a choice. We can we can pledge our allegiance to a program or to other, yeah, to the program or to people's programs that we pledge our allegiance to, the president, whatever it is. Or we can pledge our allegiance to God, but like a God that that's tricky, right? Because we get ideas, we get stories about what God is and we pledge allegiance to that. And that's a slippery slope into the Inquisition. We pledge our allegiance to communism, which is essentially pledging our allegiance to other human beings and a set of ideas and then the devil becomes anything that opposes that slippery slope. But why Why the oldest program that has been given to us is good versus evil. Good versus evil. White versus black. Side versus side. Lakers versus Celtics. Exactly. Celtics. Oh, yeah, so it's just always this dichotomy of sides, whereas to me, true salvation and like God is like stepping out of that opposition program or seeing it for what it is. Because good, in the eyes of like, 
it's like with good and evil, you know, I remember after 9-11 happened in the States, you know, the president at the time, George Bush, he talked about the terrorists as evildoers. And I was, makes perfect sense. Like they're killing a bunch of people. But then I had this experience and I started crying because I, I don't know how this came up, but I put myself in their shoes and I basically imagined the best I could what their life was like. And I realized that in their shoes, I found myself that I thought I was good and the people I was killing were the evil ones and I was destroying evil. So we like human beings determining what's good and evil. Well, generally the evil side believes they're the good side. This is a lot of the dialogue in American politics right now too. It's like from both sides, really it's good and evil. And that's dangerous, man, because we'll do anything to defeat evil. We'll do anything. All the rules go out the door when we're trying to defeat evil. There's, there's, you can justify any action to defeat quote unquote evil. And meanwhile, the side that you think is evil is thinking the same thing about you. Go pee, man. You can just say it. Felix was just mouthing the words. I got to go pee. Go pee. Go pee in the plants. That's one cool thing about plants, man. They love, once in a while, a good pee. They absorb it. They process it. Huh, well, this has been a great conversation. A lot of food for thought. That's, you know, anytime I think of someone else being evil, it's a good exercise to put myself in their shoes and try to understand where they're coming from. Because inevitably, as far as I can tell, they think they're good and I'm evil. And who's right? Nobody. Just, it's programs, it's stories, belief systems. But we need belief systems, right? In order, I'm having a conversation with myself. We need belief systems. Or do we need them? I don't think we really do. But there's something beautiful about culture, about a, you know, a, a mass of people that agree on a certain story. And from that agreement, they create monuments and art and culinary food. And culture is beautiful, but it's like, is the programming necessary on any level? And is it justifiable? Like, because culture can be really beautiful. Like the Japanese culture of like that attention to detail and, you know, these things we talked about in the beginning, that's also at its root, it, it, there, there's, there's a, a cultural program that values really hard work and, and attention to detail and perfection. From that perspective. But then <clears throat> you get the internal pressures where a lot of Japanese people commit suicide 
Right. Because there's so much pressure to be perfect. Mm. So this is why I'm saying, like, again, the, the changing of my mind to see different angles of one thing. And ultimately, I'm hoping that one thing is myself. And I see how I can be bent to think one way or bent to think another way. So instead of allowing somebody else to bend me to think one way, I'm going to think in as many ways as I can, from as many perspectives as I can, by choice. So I can see, hopefully, a different angle on myself. Neutralize the grip of the program on you. Because you're basically glitching the program by introducing the opposite program at the same time. <laughs> well... The, the We talked about this exercise in an older episode, but the exercise of researching a religion, fully believing it, like getting all the way into it, and then pulling out, researching another one, falling all the way into it, and then pulling out. And especially with the context of religion, because religion is, I mean, the program God is Stories a very about interesting God. one. What's that? Stories about God. The program is not actually it, right? Right. Well, even just the word God. I mean, half of the people who listen will get turned off by the word God. Mm-hmm. The other half will be like, yeah, God. Well, what what is your image of God? That's why whenever I talk about God, I always say God or you know, your internal wisdom or higher consciousness, whatever you want to call it. The universe. The universe. Whatever it is. Whatever is the least triggering word for you to understand the concept of that which is undefinable and wherein all peace exists. Yeah. And understanding. I, I, I think the, the biggest challenge in all of this, though, is the identification with a group. Doesn't matter what the group is. Doesn't matter how much you feel inclined that this group is your group. But there's always an identification with a group. I identify myself with the group of jiu-jitsu guys. I identify myself with the group of motorcyclists. I identify myself with the group that Americans. Likes Americans. Absolutely. All these, all these groups, these groups, they have rules they have ideologies they have a god whether it's the god of motorcycles for me is the bmw gs uh, 1250 it's a cool bike it's amazing i love it man it's the greatest bike on the road if you ever want to buy a motorcycle that's the one you should get i want it man you just sold it to me or harley davidson man there's a whole i don't like harleys there's a huge following of harleys for some people that's their main that's their life. They wear Harley jackets. It's they cool f- to see them drive by. It's cool. They're cool bikes. But it's a group. And it- their Mecca is Sturgis. <laughs> <laughs> of that religion. Or wherever. But there's a God in every group. And the way to find a way out of the God of every group, or to find a way out of any group, is to figure out the God. To find the God or the king ruling the throne. Who is the real king ruling the throne in my group? In my favorite group? Well, it's actually the one producing the motorcycle. Producing the product. 
It's Alio Gracie, the man who invented jujitsu. But I think like different people also might have assigned a different god of so like Americans like some would say it's the president, some would say it's the founders, some would say it's the culture, some would say it's freedom. But those are all groups. Some would say it's slavery. Exactly. And oh, then those are all yeah. They're all they're, they're all different groups. Right. I mean, there's subgroups and groups. You got to be careful of your groups. And I I think this is such an important time to really find the individual again. Ayn Rand, and she's a controversial writer. I understand that. I know she's written a lot of controversial books. But she has an incredible book where there is no I. And everyone works together and they all have these numbers, but they're all we. So anything that happens... Sounds like communism, right? Yeah. She was a big big critic of... Yeah, she came from it. Yeah. But she... In this book, these these two characters, this male and this female, they started to break free from the group. They started to notice each other. They fell in love. And it was actually through love that they started to realize that there is an interaction between the two of them. Because there was no group act there were no activities outside of the group. And there's a group meal and and we all eat at seven. And we all watch our favorite film at eight. And it's our favorite film. And then they escape this world and they go out into the forest and they find this old house and this house has these books and in this book they found a word they had never heard before. That bo- that word was I. And speak of mind-altering books, that was one of them. And I'll put the... I have to remember the name of the book. Um, and I'll put it... I'll pass it on. <laughs> But I I was fully engrossed in this book and this we and the story of this number, this one being that eventually found I. And I literally, I cried when they found I. Because they found God, essentially. Mm. That's, yeah, that's really fascinating. Because... Anthem, sorry. Anthem, okay. So that's the name of the book. Because in a lot of spiritual talk, it's like, surrender your ego. Realize that we are all one. Uh, and I think that a true realization of that is a, probably a very profound and very real experience. But in the context of that book, in the context of what we see in totalitarian or communist governments, it's an enforcement of a group identity. And only that particular group identity applies. All, all, all other groups are wrong and evil. Because I think, you know, why does communism, why has it emerged in other societies? Well, I think that the critics that, that, that wanted to bring about that, that system were criticizing an over, an over uh, allegiance to the self. So they're criticizing selfish leaders and capitalists and that are only paying attention to themselves and so they want to enforce a group identity where in a perfect scenario 
everybody's working for each other and everybody's equal and everyone has equal outcomes and everything and everybody's happy. It never, it's never worked. And could it be because it's our natural inclination to be I, to be me, that that's the path. It's like, that's the path we have to go through in order to realize this path I have to go to in order to realize that I'm also not that I'm not this self identity, but if it's pro- prohibited for me to think in those terms, then I'll never, never go through that path and I'll be, I'll, I'll be a slave to an ideology because there's so much criticism of selfishness and it's, I get it. It's like, it's not fair, right? That, that Bill Gates has billions and billions and I'm worried about how I'm going to pay rent this month. But is that really a problem of, is that because of I and me and thinking individually or is that something else? Because I do get triggered anytime there's any talk of something that looks like communism. And there's a lot of talk like that right now. But it's basically an enforcement of a belief system. And we all, if we don't agree with it, we're evil. We're bigots. We're Nazis. We're whatever the words that are being thrown around right now. Simply at people who will not succumb to a group think a system that enforces values and enforces its own story about what's true and what history is i it it, it i get really tense when i see that and i see an attempt to bring that about haven't we learned our lesson of course not look what's happening right now i i think i've learned my lesson well what's what's covid COVID is a uh, virus. Is it? Isn't it? I don't know. Well, I don't know. I haven't looked at it personally. Is exactly. the earth round? Is, the, is there a new God? COVID is God. Well, the whole world is now in this group of I'll wear a mask and I will obey and I'll make sure I don't get sick and that others don't get sick. Then there's the selfish assholes who decide they don't want to wear a mask and they don't feel like they need, they don't want to live in life in fear. And, and be sheltered from this invisible virus that's traveling on the air. Us and them again. And what happens when the whole world is involved in this battle? But it's a, that's a complicated one because the argument with the masks is I'm wearing a mask to protect others, right? So it's not about me. You're giving yourself to an ideology. Because the scientific... The science behind it, I believe, would say wear a mask in certain situations. But but again, like, what about the flu? What about all these other viruses? There's billions of viruses. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I've been, I've been really exploring this, and I've been all over the place with it. But it's like the argument is this is, it actually is far more contagious, and it has a higher death rate. It kills a lot more people than the flu, and hospitals get overwhelmed if nobody is being responsible about trying to mitigate the spread. I could it, die in a car accident. I still get in a car I accident. know, man. There's six million ways to die. 
so many ways to die. Six million. Again, but it's just, all I'm referring to is the fear of death. And I can live in my life very afraid that I'm going to catch it or that I'm going to be a contagion for it and just walk around and really vibe with that and then really hate people who aren't wearing masks because they don't care about my safety and they're obviously very selfish. Mm. And I could really vibe with that. I mean, that makes sense, right? How can I argue with that? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to argue. But what if I'm not afraid of death? What if I'm not afraid to get sick and I know that Eventually, I'm going to die anyway, and it probably may, it probably will not be COVID nineteen. Yeah, I, 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 I hear that, and I tend to agree with that view. Is but then I also imagine, well, if I were to get it, and if I were one of the people that got really sick from it, my view about it might change because I've heard you know people that I know say they wouldn't wish this on anybody. Like it really sucked. I don't wish bronchitis on anyone. I've had it several times. Right. I don't wish car accidents on anyone. Yeah, you know, it's interesting thing happened too after the election. It's like uh, in the states, for whatever reason, it's the 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 Democrat, the left side, has been really pushing for masks, and it's really that side that's been all about masks and criticizing those who don't wear it. The right side, I mean, there's a mix on both sides, but the right side is more about like personal freedom and you take responsibility for yourself. We're not going to enforce anything. But then when the left side, when uh, Joe Biden won, there's all this footage of huge celebrations of people on the street not wearing masks and big groups. And it was like that side was the one that was, wait, wait a minute, we weren't supposed to be. When the when the Trump side was having rallies and not masks, everyone was calling them out, you know, and it's like there's as long as uh, we can we can drop that mask thing as long as we're justified in our celebration or our protests. But what's the, yeah, I mean the COVID rabbit hole, like, I mean, is, so do you think there's some kind of intention behind it or is this just a natural response and that some people are taking advantage of that response in terms of, being able to control people and dominate them. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, and I and I don't want to assume to know. I'll say what I see. I see a multi-billionaire really excited to get vaccines out and make a lot of money off of it. I see several multi-billionaires who have just almost doubled their wealth in this last eight months. I've seen people fear each other like literally run to the other side of the road when they see each other walking down the road i've seen uh, i've been into smaller communities here where they literally say they're either going to call the police or they're going to get the president of the community up there because i'm in their community and that amount of fear makes me really sad so if anything the main thing i can say i observe through all of this is fear Is fear and is people buying a story on either side to support their fear? I'm either afraid that a globalist elitist group wants to control me and put a mask on my face and then vaccinate me with little bio codes and then that'll be the only way I can move around the world. Or a fear that I'm going to catch this virus and I'm going to die. 
And I mean, as the months went on and on, the fear of that virus got less, as I saw here in the community, and the fear of actually I'm going to get hungry because I don't have work for people became very real and alive. The economy here is not doing well, is not. And that's a very real thing. That's a bit more immediate and real than a virus that people can catch. Most people are fine. 99 point whatever it is. So I just through my observations, and I'm not saying there is no virus. I'm not saying this is a conspiracy. I'm not saying any of these. I'm not going to take a side and play a game. I'm just going to say what I observe. And I'm observing a lot of fear. And... Man, fear is not the way to live. Fear and people really profiting from this whole thing. Absolutely. Very few people. And if I, if I, if you think I'm wrong, if any of the listeners think I'm wrong, I am so open to hear so many different sides. Please. I don't think you can really be labeled as wrong simply from observations that you've been having because you, you haven't actually expressed any opinion or what you believe is true and what this is. Right. Um, I think in my own experience of this, I've had moments where I thought I knew what it was, but I'm totally, I've let go of that. Like, I really don't know. I don't know much yet. And it depends on what side I listen to in this whole debate, but I'm easily can be swayed either way. Uh, I know in my own experience, so this is, I can just own this, that I am not afraid of this. And... Yeah, so I wear a mask in areas. I I wear a mask now because I think it makes other people feel better. <laughs> exactly. How is that not manipulation, though? Yeah, I know. That's the thing that, that, again, going back to what we just talked about, this programming. How is that not programming? Yeah. Because that's, that's herd mentality again. Oh, this one sheep. It's not the same color not as the rest sheep of us. over here, yeah. Oh, this one sheep is not wearing a mask. Ostracize. Shame, shame, shame. You're selfish. Yeah. I don't get that vibe here, though, even though everyone's wearing a mask. I think we, you're supposed to, but I see people walking around without it. And Peruvians don't really, the ones I've seen, like the locals here don't really, right now, maybe in the beginning, in but the now beginning, they're different. kind of over it. Well, they, they, I love Peruvians because they're very practical, tangible What's in front of me? As a general assessment, yeah. Assessment kind of thing. I mean, as a general, yeah, it's a general assessment of the Peruvians. But again, like I, I look at everyone here in our community and what on, people don't want to wear a mask anymore. No one's wearing a mask. No, they have to carry, you know, kilos upon kilos of potatoes up and down this mountain. They can barely breathe. They're like, come on, I got to be able to do my work. Yeah, I mean, I just, and that's just an observation. and And I think... In general, fear is the biggest form of manipulation. And I, in general, when we know who our enemy is, we know how to fight and we have our group. And if the world is fighting one thing, we're all united in one cause. Mm. Our attention is pointing in some direction. One world government. <laughs> the new world order. I mean, that's essentially like models of like WHO. I mean, it's attempting that, right? I would hate that, man. If you feel far removed from the capital of your country, imagine there's just one world government determining everything for everybody. And sometimes, it, when I observe, it seems to be the direct... There's, there's 
some very powerful people that are intending for that, that, that tend to make choices based on that and that tend to support and, and back and finance leaders and governments that, are, that will also do that work to push in that direction. And that I have an aversion to that. And so I tend to want to follow or choose leaders that are trying to fight that. I used to think is when I was younger, like we should just be one world, like all come together and work together and just one world government, screw countries, screw borders, like a, a really idealistic in my idealistic view. If we did that, you know, we'd all just be happy and we wouldn't fight anymore and all this. Sure. I think it's a model that could exist. Absolutely. But first, we need to get over ourselves. <laughs> or we need to, I wouldn't even just want to say that. We need to embrace ourselves and we need to realize our own power. And if we're going to have a one world, united, no border place, it needs to promote and respect individual rights. And so essentially, if you're really doing that, then you don't have a world government. You let people determine their fate. <laughs> well, man, I, I I think in the earlier episodes, I told the listeners, like, yeah, you know, I used to really enjoy conspiracies. And I still do. They're fun mind candy. They're fun. They're fun ideas. I, some, I, I avoid them like horror movies sometimes. <laughs> I think they're scary. But exactly. At the end of every one of those holes, of those rabbit holes, there's, it's fear. Again. On both sides. And this is why, like, even if there's a new world order, there's a new government, and they're going to put chips in my arm, and I'm going to walk around, and I can only have a life with a chip in my arm. Well, I'm not afraid of that. You can't stop my mind. You can't stop my spirit. So you'll take the chip? I didn't say I would. (laughs) But... If it came to that, you know. If it came to that, if I'm being forced to the ground with a gun to my head, I mean, hopefully they just, I don't know, say you go to jail and that's where all the non-chip people live. (laughs) But whatever, in the ultimate most terrifying outcome of all of this They they can't, nothing can really touch. Nothing can touch me. That which is beyond words that is within. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. And and that's why, like, through our whole, this podcast, just talking about the programming, the programming is just a layer upon a layer upon a layer of things that have pushed us and pulled us in certain directions. And the more I come to finding out what they're trying to push or what is trying to be pushed or pulled around, the more interested I become, the more I'm trying to find what is the truest expression of me. And man, all the rest, man, I turn my phone off anytime I want. It's my choice to participate in COVID-19. It's my choice to participate in U.S. elections. It's my choice to be happy each day. Why, why would I put that on somebody else or something else or some my country thousands of miles away? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to keep reminding myself of this because I'm only talking to myself in this situation. Is I have to keep reminding myself because it's so easy to pick up that phone. And man, the screen is pretty nice. 
I got a it's a 1080p screen on my phone, wow. man. So it's real nice HD. That. You know, it's it's shiny. I want one. It's shiny, and I could be a silly monkey, and I can sit in my room and be shiny, shiny, shiny buttons. Woo! I can make the the puzzle fit together on the phone ten million times, but I'm just I'm chewing on bubble gum in my head, and I'm wasting time. And I have this life, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it well, hopefully. Hmm. Amen. Hallelujah. Wow. I feel like that this conversation is going to leave me with much to digest. Or this conversation, there, it is possible that this conversation will leave digestion to happen. <laughs> there is also hunger right now, possibly. Eating is in the near future, possibly. You're mixing two in one, which is I like know, I'm <laughs> doubling it up, man. Woo, that's intense. Wow, well, here's to deprogramming. Absolutely. That's what plant med. that's what these plants are really, in a lot of ways, that's what they're here for. They're supporting us to deprogram. Brainwash. I think people are so afraid of yeah, the word, yeah. this word, trigger word, brainwash. But there's such a, it's a good thing. In let's plant let's wash our brains every now and again. Yeah, let's wash, wash the mind. Bring some clarity. Bring a, a closer sense of what our truest expression is. Because, you know, and I ponder this stuff and I talk about it, but I'll never, well, I can't say never, but I have no idea what's actually possible in terms of my consciousness and awareness. I have been subjected to this programming since day one and so i don't know anything else or small me doesn't know there's a there's a deeper sense of what that is and what that means but it's like if everybody is hypnotized then nobody knows that they're hypnotized and anyone who's unhypnotized man they're crazy crazy. they're crazy and people probably think i'm not saying i'm unhypnotized but probably think that even the idea of programming is crazy. I don't think so. I mean, to me, a, a rational human being would recognize this as like, yeah, I mean, that's what advertising is, for example. Hopefully. That's what maybe. culture is. Yeah. It's a program. But I want to I wanna see it from the person who really loves their program. Yeah. Because that's that's the hardest place to see your the program. The person who is really obsessed with their program probably isn't listening to this podcast. That's true. It's too far beyond words. It's too, yeah. <laughs> we want to stick to the words. Not going beyond. But yeah, it's, uh, it's like power over others is power to determine their programming. Yeah, that's fun. Wow, man. All right. I'm hungry, Felix. <laughs> I need to go home and I'm eat some too. chicken. Eat some chicken. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to go roast a chicken. I'm going to make a stir fry. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you, everybody. This was awesome. This was a journey. This is a journey. Beyond words. Whew. All right, time to land again. Uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Uh, join us uh, at beyondwords.locals.com. Join our community there. Uh, it's amazing. Everything's amazing. And we're so grateful to all of you, all of our listeners, everyone. We're so grateful for you. Yes, thank you for joining us on this journey, and we'll see you on the next one. Ciao.